Good evening. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, pleased to welcome you to another edition of our weekly program. And tonight, we're delighted to feature popular Del Rey author David Masamoto, accompanied by his daughter Nikiko on Taiko Drone, reading a story mainly about his father entitled Scent of a Father. Now, where else can you hear a story made more poignant and memorable because it's got drums in the background? So here they are, David Mas Masamoto, along with daughter Nikiko reading Scent of a Father. The Scent of a Father Ask what does a father smell like? My answer, like the smoke from a campfire. Ironically, I have never gone camping with Dad. We have never spent overnight bonding trips together out in the wilderness. He never taught me the proper way to build a small campfire with kindling stacked into a teepee shape or how to separate green from cured wood. I'm not sure many dads really did these things anyway. In talking with my peers, most of us certainly don't know how to make a proper cooking fire, and I suppose the world will have to brace for a generation lacking in the essential outdoor survival skills. Yet, whenever I smell wood burning or stand for any length of time near a fire and allow smoke to linger and penetrate my clothes, I think of Dad. In the old orchard that Dad and I planted three decades ago, every year branches and limbs die. We saw and dragged them to the ditch bank, where for months they looked like Monet's haystacks in the early morning light or late afternoon sun. We burned the woodpile in the autumn when there's finally some time to finish a chore, a precursor to pruning for the next year in a time of renewal. Most small farms have a wood pile, a collection of limbs and stumps mixed with odd clippings and prunings from the fields and yard. A place to stack the dead, trees and vines that have aged or when grafted, the old branches that were sawed and hauled off in order to make way for the new. Tucked way out back, these piles tell of changes on our farm. It's a modern-day slash-and-burn method as the farm evolves. Burning is like a purification ritual as the old turns into ashes. Sometimes I'll spread the dust in the fields when the cremation pile rises high. Dad and I head out early with pruning shear, shovel, and hand saw, along with some sheets of newspaper and a book of matches. He has a routine in order to start the fire. He will wait for the occasional day when the wind 
blows from east to west in order to keep the smoke out of our eyes and sustain a natural fanning of the flames. First he'll find a very dry branch and begin cutting it into small pieces for kindling. He locates a sheltered area and crumples newspaper and jams it under the sticks, flinging a match and igniting the flames. Quickly, the fire leaps into the pile and the dry, withering leaves explode in a crackle. Initially, the slender and well-cured branches catch fire and the entire pile jumps to life. The smoke is thick and dense, the smell choking and heat intense. Wild moments burst forth. The initial rush of fire, racing to consume leaves and twigs, creating a few moments of anxiety. The fire is not to be controlled. It grew and spread much too rapidly. We could not contain her energy. But after 10 or 15 minutes, the sticks ignite and die out, burning the thicker two or three inch wood branches. We then begin with a small pile of red embers. Dad piles on logs, smoke curls with a lazy rhythm, and the scent of the blaze settles into our clothes, hair, and skin. As the day unfolds, the flames carve out a cavity and a pocket of empty space where branches once laid. I push the pile inward, sometimes with the help of a tractor, closing the gap and feeding the fire. Ash dust mixed with sparks billow into the air. The new fuel crackles and the inferno leaps with new life. The smoke penetrates my lungs. I can no longer smell the fire. I feel enveloped. I'll spend the whole day with Dad, watching his methods, adding an unsolicited opinion that he greets with a nod. We talk little, listening instead to the hiss and crack of the wood and the popping and spitting sap. A stray piece of lumber is tossed into the pile. We stand back with the shift and the wind and cover our eyes, blinking to get the smoke out. We flirt with adventure by jamming in too much wood at one time. Fire burns to new heights. The heat grows so intense we're pushed away. We have to shield our faces with our farm hats, protecting our skin from a spike in temperatures. We stand in silence and watch a shiver of terror with the power of the flames, a humbling feeling before the inferno. My imagination runs wild. Were Dad a God-fearing, zealous evangelist? I swear he brought me out to the woodpile to teach me a lesson. The flames soar and the timbers crackle and shake. They snap and tumble to the earth, sending sparks flying into the air as if struck by lightning. The almighty power. I'm really 
glad we're Buddhists. Occasionally, the smell of burnt rubber piques my interest. The aroma is strong, distinct, and nasty. I've learned to look immediately at my work boots. Had I stepped on an ember, or while feeding the flames, I may have walked across an ash pile, still hot and hungry for fuel. Once I had to retreat and take off my shoes. I tapped the soles, and they were so hot I could not keep my fingers on their surface. I felt my socks; they too were flushed. Had I kept my boots on, I would have burnt my feet. My shoes were on fire without flames. The scent of melting rubber, my only warning. Neighbors will lift their noses when they smell our woodpile, scanning the horizon as they look for the line of smoke filling the sky and wonder what's burning. Black, dark smoke, telltale signs of an oil-based fire, but the gray, almost white column identifies a farmer. A cluster of column usually means an entire orchard or vineyard is burning. The farmer has pulled and piled something old, while making way for something new. What began as a huge pile in the early day ends with ashes. I don't believe Dad feels powerful with each burn. We don't work as conquerors, laying our victims to waste. We renew the farm with each fire, while reducing the pile to nothing. At the end of the day, we trudge home, worn out, but the pile is reduced to ashes, the embers burning all night. Tomorrow, we can roll the thick stumps into the center, and they'll ignite and burn all day. Only later at home do I realize how smoky we smell. The scent penetrates all our clothes, even our hair. We shower and wash our clothes together, and still the smoke remains embedded in the fabric. And for weeks we relive the autumn burn pile, accompanied by the faint scent of smoke. Dad and I are about the same size. Years ago, when I lived with my parents, we occasionally got our clothes mixed up. As I buttoned a work shirt, I thought it smelled old, with a hint of his sweat, but still clean. Now at eighty years old, Dad has lost weight and slouches as he shuffles along. He no longer needs all his work clothes. He gives them to me, and even after laundering, I can't wash out his scent, nor do I want to. Dad and I talk about old schools that once dotted the countryside. Some abandoned buildings still stand: Rosedale Prairie School, D. Wolf School on the corner of D. Wolf and Central. The Masamotos moved around a lot. Jichan Grandpa couldn't own land because of the racist alien land laws that specifically excluded Orientals. New generations of Italians, Germans, and Armenian immigrants with heavy accents and alien cultures also arrived in Fresno, but they were allowed to buy farms, settle down, plant roots. I imagine they learned the smell of one place. 
The Masamotos were farm workers or at best leased land for a few years before moving on, drifting across the countryside like a wandering scent caught in the breeze. The last place Grandpa rented was out near Selma on Manning Avenue. They remained there for a few extra years because the kids wanted to stay in one school. The grapes grew strong under the family's care. A widow owned the land and had no intention of farming it herself. Japanese make good renters take care of their places, Dad remembers. The plan was to keep renting for a few more years until the oldest son, Uncle George, had graduated high school and could work in the fields full time. Everyone saw signs the Great Depression was ending. Raisins sold for $42 a ton in 1939, $49 in 1940, and then jumped to $56 in the summer of 41 with a light crop and there was talk of it climbing even higher. Uncle George was so confident that he went out and bought a new car, something reliable so we could drive to the other farms and make some extra money, Dad rationalized. I'm sure both teenage brothers enjoyed the smell of a new car. The family could soon swing a deal to buy their own farm, too. Dad was just finishing school and could add his strong back and quick hands. Then Uncle George got drafted into the United States Army. He left for training in the fall of 1941s, and plans were put on hold. The family would have to lease land for a few more years. Then Pearl Harbor on December 7th, and America went to war. Japanese Americans were deemed part of the enemy and 120,000 of them were ordered to evacuate, leave their homes and be imprisoned behind barbed wire in desolate areas of the country. In August of 1942, the Masamotos were ordered to pack up what they could carry and depart for Gila River Relocation Center south of Phoenix in the Arizona desert. During the frantic weeks before evacuation, a question hung over every Japanese-American family. What would you leave behind? No one knew if and when they'd return. Some found a place to store goods with a good neighbor if they had one. Homes were sought for personal objects, and even pets, a dog or cat, had to be disposed of quickly. Most sold what they could, along with the thousands of others in the area who were forced to conduct fire sales, as Dad called them. Pennies instead of dollars, Dad grumbles. 
Families desperately tried to dispose what they could not take. Blankets, linens, household goods for a few cents, small farm tools and equipment good one day, virtually worthless the next. And Uncle George's new Chevy sedan sold for nothing. But the Masamotos had another problem. By mid-August, all Japanese were ordered to evacuate and they'd leave behind a grape crop. Jichan worried what would happen to the grapes that the family had pruned, tied, weeded, and watered, grapes that had bloomed and grew fat through the spring and summer and hung ready for harvest in September, raisins to be dried and sold in the autumn, income finally collected once a year, and profits split between owner and renter. But the landlord widow was scared. She worried that without Japanese to pick and dry the crop, who would take care of her land? The widow grew frantic. She was too old to manage the vineyard for the last crucial month of harvest. She'd need help immediately. The best available farmers were busy with their own lands and good renters were hard to find on such short notice. Dad approached her, inquiring how the widow would take care of the farm. She said nothing. August began with no arrangement. A final irrigation water of the year was applied to the grapes and they quickly swelled with juice. Meanwhile, Jichan made wooden crates from odd planks and old fruit lugs. He stenciled number 40551 on each box, the Masamoto identification number to be labeled on all personal baggage. In the heat of the late summer, it continued to beat on the countryside. Finally, Dad heard. The widow had found someone to take over the season's crop. The deal was this. The new renter would work a month and harvest all the raisins, but he insisted on moving into the small farmhouse immediately. The tiny house the Masamotos had lived in for years came with the rent and had to be vacated in a day. In two weeks, by the middle of August, all Japanese Americans would have to leave the area. But the widow demanded they move out immediately. She kicked us out, Dad said. All she worried about was the damn grapes. She kicked us out so an oki could move in. Dad mumbled and shook his head. An oki. The ugliness spilled from all. They had a final meeting to settle on a price for the Masamoto year of labor. The widow gave them $25 per acre. The price of the year's crop would soar to $109 a ton or over $200 per acre. Jichan and Bachan would get $25 an acre. 
the widow and the new renter would split the rest. No wonder the Oki wanted to move in. All he had to do was pick the grapes and count his profits for one month of work, Dad said. Now, where do we go? Bachan, Grandma, asked Dad. The Masamotos were homeless. They had lost everything, cheated out of a year of labor, and in two weeks they would be exiled to the desert with barracks and guard towers. Dad walked down the road to a Japanese-American family friend, the Nakayamas, who had also been renting a vineyard. Together they approached that owner, a kindly Hagujin white farmer. There was a vacant house, more of a shack than a house on the farm. Why, sure, you could stay there for a few weeks, was the response. The farmer would also give the families a ride to the train station where they would depart for the barren lands of Arizona. This man was a good neighbor. As they moved out, Dad was furious. They couldn't take much with them, a suitcase and crate, only what they could carry. His rage burned, and so it began, first with a few dishes. The hell if I was going to leave anything behind. Dad took them outside and crushed them. He grabbed pieces of simple furniture they owned, some built by Jichan. He smashed a chair. It splintered into small pieces. He carried the wood outside and began a pile. He dragged a table, a small stand, some other pieces, and flung them onto the pile. They shattered and cracked into jagged edges. He hauled everything they had but could not take and tossed them onto the heap. Then Dad set fire to it all. Rather burn it all than leave it behind, Dad blurted. The wood snapped and hissed. Boxes ignited with their contents melting. Papers and old letters and correspondence curled in the heat. The flames danced in the summer evening sky. The grapevines heavy with grapes stood as witness. The smell of smoke filled the air. And Dad watched the fire engulf our belongings. Now, when I think of the scent of my father, I smell smoke in his clothes, the aroma of his fire turns black.
That was David Mas Masamoto and his daughter Nikiko reading a story of his entitled Scent of a Father. We've never before had a drummer accompany a story on our program, and so we want to congratulate Nikiko for the fine job she did in supporting her dad's words on her taiko drum. And didn't the presentation really make us hear the sounds, see the sights, and smell the smoke of that angry fire when the father burned all of the Masamoto's possessions after finding out that they would not be able to take them with them to those camps in Arizona. Friends, David Mas Masamoto, and on occasion his wife and daughter, have been on our program many times. As you probably know, they are the proud owners of a lovely farm just east of Fresno in Del Rey. Besides regularly writing a column for the Sunday Fresno Bee, David has published eight popular books. Without a doubt, he's considered one of our best Valley authors, and we certainly appreciate his and his family's coming on our show so many times and hope he'll send us many more of his stories in seasons to come. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be Angelo Angarano. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.